This podcast is brought to you by Shift Management Supervisory Leadership Certificate Course, where online learning and live web coaching bring out the very best in frontline and middle managers. Move from operations to management thinking and develop the skills for leadership, reaching your company goals at the same time. Check out our Supervisory Leadership Certificate Course on the shiftworkplace.com website today. Hello, everybody, and welcome to the Culture and Leadership Connections podcast, where it is my honor to interview Colin Christopher, the hypnotist, who is a keynote speaker, a stage hypnotist, and a sought-after authority in hypnosis, appearing all over the world on networks like ABC, CBS, NBC, Fox, and many others. As a clinical hypnotherapist, hypnosis instructor, and author, Colin has also been featured in hundreds of prominent publications like the LA Times, the Daily Mail UK, Metro New York, Psychology Today, and L. He started off with his hypnosis career in high school when his drama teacher was ill and he took over the class in a relaxation exercise and it just grew from there. He speaks on topics varying from weight loss and quitting smoking to dating, sales training, and how to manipulate a boyfriend to propose. So I think you're really going to enjoy this interview with Colin Christopher. And Colin, welcome. Thank you so much for being guest on our podcast. It's a pleasure. Thank you very much for having me. So that was just a little bit of information about you, but why don't you fill the audience in and tell us a little bit more about who you are and what you do? I think you started off great with that uh, little tidbit of uh, me back in high school. I had a drama teacher, Mrs. Klein. She used to hypnotize us uh, for relaxation during drama class. And I I remember my friend Nadine, she came up to me because Mrs. Klein was sick. And Nadine, she said, Colin, you should try it. And I said, I don't really know how to do that. And she said, just give it a shot. And I remember the rest of the class, they sort of, uh, they were overhearing the conversation. They said, yeah, Colin, yeah, do it, do it. And I remember thinking, and naturally, I sort of just gave in to peer pressure. And uh, I just copied what Mrs. Klein was doing, and I hypnotized the entire class for relaxation. I mean, later on, once I figured out uh, and took training and learned all about it and understood how it worked, I realized, um, you know, you actually need training. The people have trouble waking up if you don't know how to hypnotize them properly. I got really lucky that day, and everything sort of worked out. Uh, being a hypnotist today with uh, Mrs. Klein uh, hypnotizing us and my friend Nadine, yeah, just encouraging me. And like she, I remember afterwards she said, you know, Colin, that was really awesome. <laughs> I remember sort of just looking at her and thinking, yeah, I should be a hypnotist. So it's ironic neither of them actually ever saw me do or perform a show. They uh, they passed away a number of years back, uh, but really those relationships that I formed with them, they're the reason that I'm a hypnotist now because of their influence and because of their encouragement. So Colin, that's a great startup story. Not too many people can say they started their careers as a result of having hypnotized a drama class. So that's, that's pretty good. <laughs> can you share a couple of incidents from your childhood that you believe made you into the person you are today? Uh, yeah, I would say so that's a really interesting question. I think definitely the hypnosis uh, back in high school, I think, um, couple of other ones that come to mind. There was actually one when I was about um, seven years old. I was in grade two. You know, we were just playing out in recess. And I remember um, we were playing like a combination of tag and wrestling. I remember my hand 
actually hitting one of my classmates. It was like this accidental thing. There was nothing on purpose. Like we weren't actually fighting, but it uh, knocked one of his teeth out. I felt just absolutely mortified and terrified. And I remember, um, like, I didn't even go back to class. I went over to the principal's office directly to kind of just turn myself in. Um, <laughs> yeah, yeah, it was it was pretty much it. Like, the, you know, class started and I was, I, I didn't cry. I remember that at that point. But I remember, like, the principal just coming in. He said, you need to just go back to your class. Um, like, I told him what happened. And so I went back to my class and I just sort of came to the entrance and knocked on the door. And I opened the door and the I remember my teacher, she just started yelling at me, like absolutely screaming at me that I had knocked out a permanent tooth of my classmate. Like she did this in front of my entire class. Like there was, uh, I don't remember, probably 28, 29 kids. I just remember like I was absolutely devastated. I thought I had just completely altered my friend's life and there was no kindness. There was no forgiveness in my teacher's words. Like she was just attacking derogatory. And I was seven years old in front of my peers and classmates. Uh, later on, my mom, I remember she phoned uh, the other student's mom and uh, they talked and it actually ended up being a loose tooth that got knocked out. Like I didn't really realize at that age that, you know, for the, the small tap that he actually took, <laughs> he shouldn't have had a, like a real tooth wouldn't have got knocked out. So it was so, not a permanent you know, tooth. It was a baby. It tooth. wasn't. It wasn't. It was a baby tooth. It wasn't permanent. But the damage that my teacher did to me in front of my classmates was very real and very palpable. And I remember after that, like I did not particularly social. This was probably. I think it was. Uh, would have been March of the school year, and of course went all the way till June and I really just became really antisocial. I didn't talk to my friends because all my friends at that point in time, because the teacher had uh, been so, um, I, I don't want to say abusive of me. Like I, I don't remember it being abusive. I just remember her being so harsh that now all my friends sort of made fun of me as well. And so that really stuck to me in terms of um, my outgoingness. And that really, it really stopped me from making new friendships because uh, after that year, I actually moved to a different school, and it was really hard for me to sit down and, and talk to people after that, just because I had this uh, overwhelming psychological experience at seven years old of an authority figure just yelling at me and uh, attacking me in front of kids my age. And so that really stayed with me, I would say, probably well beyond university. It wasn't until I uh, later on moved on, started doing uh, events on cruise ships and shows on cruise ships where uh, I remember the cruise director was my first day I got on the ship and he said, uh, so part of why you're here is to socialize with guests. And I remember looking at him and I said, that's, uh, that wasn't part of the agreement. Like I wasn't told that as part of it, like, cause I was really antisocial at that point. And he said, well, if you don't actually go and socialize with guests and, and, talk to them and be a part of the crew, then you're going to have to go home. And uh, so I realized I needed to sink or swim at that point. And that's when I started thinking, okay, who can I talk to right now with the least amount of risk? So because I, in my head, I was thinking back to when I was like seven years old and I would just get yelled at if I did it wrong. And so I started targeting, <laughs> just talk, not targeting, but I started looking for seniors in wheelchairs on the ships. Cause there was, I was like the oldest, the oldest people that looked like they could not catch me if I screwed it up. So I sort of walked up to them and I'd start talking to them and uh, I'd, you know, ask them about the weather and um, 
their kids and like all those standard little small talk things, uh, sports stuff, uh, you know, where they grew up, where they were going on vacation, all that stuff. And I slowly began to realize that they weren't going to yell at me. In fact, people were appreciative of actually talking to me and spending time with me and uh, me spending time with them. And that's when I started realizing, well, there's probably better ways to start doing conversations than talking about weather and talking about grandkids. And I started developing my social skills and talking and understanding uh, the dynamics of conversations. And then later on after that, you know, because of that experience, I started seeing clients for hypnosis and hypnotherapy. And I realized those same conversation dynamics could be improved with the same dynamics that I use through a hypnotherapy session, you know, asking very pointed questions, specific questions to get to the root of uh, problems and to get people's opinions and get them talking. And so I think, although it started out rough when I was seven years old, it forced me later on to really analyze how to communicate with somebody effectively so that they can open up and actually feel like they're having a genuine conversation with me and that I can genuinely help them. So that experience really was formative in so many different ways. I mean, it was damaging, but you were able to use it as a way to see that you didn't want other people to feel that way or to be treated that way. And True, but it did take me 20 years. <laughs> it did, but you were able to do that because you wanted to keep the gig and you wanted yeah. to move forward with your profession. And so you realized you had to do that and then it came out of that, right? Yeah. It's, it's a really great story because it shows how much influence people have over children and that, you know, the things that we say can so much affect somebody's life trajectory, but at the same time that we're not limited by it, even if it's been devastating, we can still move past it. Yeah, I, I agree. Like a lot of people find uh, things that happen to them can be, uh, although it can be limiting, there is the opportunity if you're in the right frame of mind and you're in the right situation to be able to move forward with your life and use it, turn it into an advantage. Yes, which you certainly did. That's a really great story. And also it's moving because it really does show how much uh, people's feelings can be trapped, <laughs> can trap them, right? <laughs> like, especially when you're really emotional, uh, whether it's a, in that case for me, it was a, a terrified emotion that I was in and experiencing at that point in time. It doesn't have to be a terrifying emotion that can keep you stuck somewhere. You can have a really happy moment that you can be stuck in. It's a lot easier to be stuck in a happy moment than it is to be in a terrified moment. It's just, it's the strength of that emotion that shapes the life of the person experiencing it. And how that judgment of another person can also affect them significantly because you felt judged in a, and blamed for something that really you didn't understand that much. You were only seven years old. Turned out not to be such yeah, a big that, deal in the long run, but that judgment and that whole wave of blaming that was heaped on you at, in that moment. The woman was my teacher. There's a large authority, authority that given to that person. And in that case, in my opinion now, with all the experience in hindsight, it was an abuse of her authority. Yes. Even though I don't think it wasn't an intentional abuse. I think she was, she was genuinely, she thought at the time that I had knocked out this kid's permanent tooth. And there was genuineness about it, but at the same time, it, it could have been definitely handled much differently. Mm -hmm. Yeah. In retrospect, if she had done something to try and make amends, what do you think that could have been that might have helped? You know, it's a really good question. I've never actually thought about that. It's, it's just, and nowadays with uh, the way culture has progressed, I'd say over the last 30 years, that people think about making amends, but I, I never even received a, a sorry. 
or I apologize or um, like, you know what, I was wrong. I made a mistake. There was none of that. It was just, everything was downloaded on me as I was the perpetrator though. It was like putting full adult responsibility onto a seven-year-old. Right. I think maybe just saying, sorry, I made a mistake would have been all, it probably would have been helpful for me at that point in time. It would have alleviated a lot of that stuff. And mm-hmm. a public apology, like she did it in front of everybody. Right. If she had done it in a room where nobody was there, it wouldn't have been as uh, brutal and devastating to me. Exactly. Because the kids didn't understand either that there was a mistake on her part. No, and they just followed her lead in continuing the humiliation. Yeah. So let's move on from that, although I'm really, I was really interested by that <laughs> yeah, particular one. So from the groups that you're born into, because everybody's born into a culture and a time and an age group. Mm-hmm. And as you were saying before, there might be, you know, what might have been appropriate at the time for adults in the way that they spoke to children is not appropriate now, or mm-hmm. at least in this culture. So there are groups that you're born into, and whether you're in the city or rural, all of that has to do with the, your sense of belonging to groups. So which groups would you say have most influenced your sense of culture and self right now? The first thought I have is, so my parents immigrated from Germany back in the 50s and 60s. And one of the things that uh, was a result of Germans uh, immigrating I guess anywhere all over the world I've experienced it, at least I did when I was younger, because it was so close after World War II, there was a lot of animosity towards Germans. So when I was born, I obviously spoke German because that was the language that they spoke in the house. And so I learned to speak German before I learned to speak English. And then, you know, I don't know what age I was, probably four or five, just hanging around other people or kids my age. I learned English and got really good at English. And actually, my German is pretty bad now by comparison because I just don't practice it anymore. Uh, But there was a high degree of racism that I experienced, not to the extent, and I don't mean to diminish because there's there's racism anywhere, everywhere. And I've experienced this traveling all over the world, um, different races, different cultures, but the the animosity and the racism I experienced, like being called a, a, a kraut, a Nazi, and all those kinds of things. Uh, when you know I was born here in Canada you know, in the mid 70s, I had nothing to do with the war, yet I experienced that uh, probably, I'm trying to think when it would have stopped, it would have probably been early university, uh, early in the 90s when that finally sort of stopped and we're talking a number of years after World War II, so like 40 years later. And so I think I never felt like I was a, a, a true Canadian at that point in time. It wasn't until, you know, after university and, and, and then actually traveling as a Canadian, working on cruise ships and performing all over the world, that uh, suddenly realizing the perception of what Canadians are in the rest of the world and how accepted we are when we travel as Canadians elsewhere. And so it was a it was this interesting switch between going from being ostracized as uh, coming from Germany originally versus um, getting this acceptance when I left Canada and, and, and traveled all over the world. So I think it's a strange thing going from a sort of rejection to acceptance because of just uh, the culture that you're born into versus being rejected or accepted because of your own personality or the person that you are. Right. is more prejudice against country of origin since, because racism is really about skin color prejudice, but country of origin yes. prejudice for sure you experienced. And um, I, it's interesting that you would say that because I also experienced that. So my father immigrated from Germany. My mother was from another country, mm-hmm. but that 
whole sense that all the time that I was growing up, all the way through into high school, the same thing happened. People would call me Nazi and say, your mother wears army boots and you kill Jews and mm. things like that all the time. So I can certainly identify with that feeling, you know, of, of having been ostracized as a result of your ethnic background, mm. your, your country, your parents' country of origin, because yeah. I was also born in Canada. It's the same thing. I think you're right. There is that distinction, the prejudice versus the racism. You're right, because that's... Uh... I, I didn't define that correctly when I first started. But yeah, I think there was the prejudice that I experienced versus the, uh, the racism a person of color experiences. And I want to make that, make that distinction because they are very different. Yeah, you might experience racism if you say move to China or, you know, mm -hmm. or Zimbabwe when you would be in the minority. But it's interesting that it's all different degrees of discrimination at any rate. And um, whenever mm -hmm. anybody experiences discrimination, it makes them more sensitive to the kind of discrimination that other people would experience. Either they pretend that they're all powerful and they bully others, or it makes them more sensitive to the fact that other people might not feel like they belong. And it sounds to me mm -hmm. from just the little bit that you've shared so far, you're quite sensitive to that. And that would help you to tune into the kinds of things that, that when if you're doing hypnotherapy, the kinds of things that could be holding people back, you, you would notice those kinds of hesitancies that could be a result of past trauma. One of the ways I help people with hypnotherapy is actually getting rid of fears and phobias and self-confidence issues. And they sort of go hand in hand where you have to identify what the triggering factors are, uh, whether it's uh, like for a lot of women, it's uh, like there's uh, sexual harassment or sexual assault, depending on the person and what they've experienced, uh, which can uh, keep them from performing better in the workplace. Or sometimes it goes the other direction where it motivates them to be more of a performer, um, but at the same time, something else in their in their life suffers because they're just delving into work and and not having that broader connection with the rest of their, you know, friends, family, and, and, you know, the rest of the things that balance life out. So it is really person dependent, but being able to, to see, uh, I guess, probably the emotion that, the, that a person's experiencing, like we can all define an emotion and, and sort of describe it, but the way we feel it is very different uh, because there's also the experience that triggers that emotion that, and all our experiences are different. Right. And so, but being able to see the emotion and understand, okay, there's a reason there's an emotion here. So let's explore that emotion so we can find out what the experience and the trigger events are so that we can resolve them so they no longer have that effect on a person and then they can move forward. Exactly. I was wondering when you were talking about, you know, being born to German parents, do you have a sense of German culture, even though the language is not so strong right now, but that you feel was influential for you? Yeah, it's, it's interesting. I, I sort of took that opposite route of because we, we went to German uh, like cultural clubs and uh, German events. And there's some German choirs and those kinds of things that we you know, we went to go see. And my parents used to take me to the Citadel downtown here in Edmonton, used to um, play German movies on Sunday afternoons, actually. So I remember we used to go to that. Um, just as a as a as an entertainment aspect, so I, I did experience a good chunk of the uh, the German culture. One of the things that really sticks out for me is I always found uh, the older German guy. This was back when I was uh, I would have been small between you know before I was about fifteen. I always found the German men really really loud and obnoxious, and um, like sort of that stereotype of them you know banging the beer the beer steins on the, on the table and, and 
And I always found that, I guess it was, it was a turnoff to my culture at that point in time. I found them just loud, boisterous, and obnoxious, and I didn't want to be around them. But I just didn't realize that, that it, wasn't, it wasn't good or bad. It was just their personalities, and that's how they grew up. They were loud and boisterous people. And uh, When people hang out with their own group, they tend to be louder. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. 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 <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, I, you know, working on cruise ships, we had people from like 70, 80 different countries working together at any given moment. And it was, there are quieter cultures and louder cultures. And um, I didn't realize that until I saw them all intermingling together, um, the differences in culture, how uh, complementary they can be at, mm-hmm. at the same time, sometimes at odds at the same time too. But that, that was, uh, I remember, uh, it was one of the hotel directors, um, Godsis was his name. He said, uh, there's very few places in the world where you can get uh, 70 different countries working together in peace and harmony. I always thought that was beautiful because you could look or you would do these um, entire uh, uh, crew pictures. Like we'd have like 800, 800 crew members and we'd, we'd get out on deck and do this big, massive crew picture. And you can just see it's like, you're right. We, there is no place else that I've experienced where we can get that many people from different places and all working together for one common goal. And you have to, you're on a ship. What are you going to do? Absolutely. Jump off and swim to the next country? I mean. (laughs) Yeah, we're We're in the middle of the ocean. There's nowhere to go. (laughs) And and we got along and we got along great. Well, just a a little bit of a sidetrack here. So was your dad one of those loud people with the beer steins or was he different? You know, I don't know the answer to that. I, I've seen him be loud, but I've also seen him be quiet. But guys I'm thinking of, I was only exposed to them at events. They were probably quiet as well. I was, I was just looking at it through the lens of being small and only exposed to one spe- those specific instances versus the entire time and their entire personalities. Yeah, and you really see a difference in children too when they're young. Some, if there's a group of people, you know, making a lot of noise and kind of hooping it up, they either join in and start doing the same thing, or they look shocked and move aside. <laughs> <laughs> that's correct. Yeah, that's a good way of describing it. Yeah. <laughs> so, from the the groups that you chose to belong to, because I mean, you you went into the profession of being a hypnotist mm-hmm. and then hypnotherapy as well, which really is that using hypnosis to help people to get past obstacles in their lives. So I'm sure you, you have other groups that you've belonged to, too. It could be languages you chose to learn. You know, for example, I, learned, I chose to learn French. So that became then a whole yeah. new group to belong to and multiple groups within that group. So there might be some, you know, as an adult groups that you chose. So what's that been like? What are some of those groups? Uh, probably the first group would actually be the cruise ship group because it's a group of people like when we were out there, you're in the middle of the ocean, there's nowhere to go. You're eating with these people, working with these people, you're seeing them every day, like more. I, I have friends that I saw more in those six months than I would have seen my family in, in three years put together because you're just there eating with them every single day. You form these bonds and friendships. It's funny, like as soon as somebody else who's worked on a cruise ship, if you find out you work on a cruise ship, there's this known understanding. Oh, you work there, I work there. And then it's like you just sit down and you start talking and you start sharing the experiences. And, and it's amazing. Actually, one of my friends, Stephanie, we were, she just came to town uh, last year. Yeah, it was last year. I haven't seen her in, uh, it was probably about 17 years the last time I saw her on a ship. But it was like yesterday, the last time we saw each other. 
and we just sat down, chatted, caught up, and you know, shared stories. And it was just it, there's something magical about that. I, I think cruise ship group. And anybody listening who's ever worked on a cruise ship, I think you you'll probably agree and understand. So there's that group that uh, definitely influenced my life. So other groups like the entertainers associations that I've uh, been a member of, like probably one of my best friends, Sheldon, he runs an event uh, rental company. And he's the person who actually got me in the first entertainers association that I became part of. He's probably one of the other people that I would credit for helping me get to where I am because he is already a stage hypnotist at that point in time. And so being able to sort of brainstorm ideas and put together a show and get valuable feedback from somebody who's already been doing it. That was really valuable. So there's other, there's a bunch of stage hypnotists that we sort of, we don't really have a, an official association with the stage hypnotists. There is an association for the hypnotherapist side, uh, the American Council of Hypnotist Examiners. There's interesting training and, and camaraderie there. But the stage entertainment side is, um, I think there's something about just being an entertainer that only other entertainers really sort of understand. Because we're on the road a lot and we're by ourselves a lot. So they, they sort of become this ad hoc family when you see them and you talk to them and you hang out with them. Mm-hmm. That's true. I've experienced mm-hmm. that as well. People don't know. They think that when you're entertaining, it's this glamorous life, but it's pretty lonely most of the time. It is because you're traveling by yourself or, or with your sound guy or production team, depending on how big the show is and what you're doing. And uh, there's a lot of airplane rides. There's a lot of sitting in the car, driving around. <laughs> you're by yourself. Mm-hmm. <laughs> And then you're in front of a big audience and then you're by yourself again. Yeah, yeah. You're in front of a big audience for an hour, hour and a half, and then poof, it's all gone. You're by yourself again. Uh, Most entertainers in the beginning, they sort of experience that because there's this isolation side, that feeling of being alone all the time. And then there's this, um, the applause side or the adulation side where all of a sudden everybody's, you know, really interested in what you do. They want to know what you're doing, how you do it. And, you know, they love the show. They're excited. And then it just disappears, and but you're overwhelmed by this large amount of time where you're just alone and isolated. <laughs> it takes a lot of getting used to, and a, a lot of uh, a lot of entertainers they sort of self-medicate. You hear the you know the alcohol, the drugs, and all that kind of stuff. It's the ones that actually stay away from that that seem to have the long staying power. They learn to manage their emotions in a in a more positive way. Yeah, and probably learn to depend on groups that, like what you mentioned, because we're social creatures. So talking about belonging to entertainers network and uh, hypnotists, you know, hypnotherapists associations, those kinds of things give you a sense of camaraderie. And then there are probably also ways to connect to family and friends here and there that keep you grounded. I've done some entertainment, but I haven't gone on, you know, years at a time like you have. But my sister did for almost 15 years. So I really know how much that affected her and how ungrounded she felt. She didn't belong to any place anymore. (laughs) (laughs) The weird thing about that is that you can talk about it, but until you actually experience it, there's no real way to prepare you for it until you experience it. Right. It's like riding a bike. You can read all you want about riding the bike, but until you actually get onto a bike and start pedaling and experiencing it, you really don't know what to expect. Exactly. So how would you say your temperament and your personality affect the way you see things? The temperament is what you're born with. The personality is what you've grown into over time and experience and choices that you make, like the choices that you made to become more sociable and things like that. I, I think temperament's also maybe shaped by experiences as well, what I am and what I'm not willing to accept. I think personality-wise, hmm. Yeah, you know, when you have a child, some kids will seem very pensive, 
you know, others will mm-hmm. be very gregarious. You know, others will just have this guiding star to be creative and others will have this guiding star to be attracted to the sciences, you know. So, mm-hmm. it, like, you, yeah. people have some things that they're born with that just continue to drive them over time. Mm-hmm. Uh, or they can have, you know, certain virtues that they also show. Some kids are just very sensitive to others. Others are more... Um, you know, they take a leadership role in any situation. Others are really strong on appreciation. You know, so does that give you some ideas? I would almost say my personality over the years has been somewhat of a roller coaster uh, from going from a temperament. I think most of the people who knew me when I was little, they said I was always quiet. And uh, that's pretty accurate. And even now, although I talk a lot and I, you know, I get up on stage for a living and do those kinds of things, I actually do enjoy a large period of time where I, you know, I like to sit and I like to think and I don't like to speak. I want to be quiet and calm and, and let my brain focus. And so developing that personality of getting up on stage and, and performing and doing all those things or that I have done and, and continue to do, you know, that really took a lot of time and it took a lot of effort. A lot of people think it's interesting, like I'm in a, well, we're both in BNI, which is how we met. Um, and people see me speak and they think, oh, I'd love to be able to speak like Colin and, you know, be able to, to make it look effortless. And it, it wasn't effortless in the beginning. And, and I think, you know, as you see people who join BNI as an example, who are really nervous about speaking, not terrible, but just nervous because they practice and they go through it. There's an evolution. And I think the biggest personality change, I would say, is that evolution from being that temperament of being quiet and silent to this you know, outspoken person that can present and be in front of a group of people and have fun uh, or be serious depending on what's required. And yet uh, that sort of roller coaster, now that I've developed that, I still like going back to the temperament of being calm and quiet and on my own a lot of the time. Mm -hmm. How would you say that affects the way you see the world? Um, I don't ask any questions on this podcast. You've noticed that, eh? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, let me switch to what's your favorite color? (laughs) they're great they're great questions they're great questions it's it's wonderful to be able to think and refine and define something so let's go back to that the last question you said was how does that this quiet and reflective temperament that you mentioned several times how does that affect the way you see the world Hmm. i think the way it affects me the most is it allows me to dissect and analyze the world it allows me to, to take a step back okay, I see, I can see the wind blowing, I can see the leaves moving in the tree, but then it allows me to take that step back and say, well, where does the wind come from? What's the reason the leaves are moving? What's the reason, you know, the the tree is growing? Where does it come from? And being able to take that step back and that calm quietness, if I'm at the personality point where I'm, you know, talking on stage, doing my thing, I'm not taking that step back to really say, where's this all coming from? Why is it the way that it is? In my introduction, you talked about that one thing where I made an article about how to manipulate your man into uh, getting him to propose to you. And the question isn't really, if you take a step back, it's, yeah, it's controversial because we use the word manipulation and people are either happy with it or, or displeased with it, depending on their experiences. But if you take the step back, what are the reasons this person hasn't asked you to marry them in the first place? You know, what is it that you're doing that's not connecting the two of you together 
so that you're getting what you want. And at the same time, they're also receiving what they want, depending on what it is that they want. Are you an actual match? Instead of the fluffy thing of, hey, let's just leave a magazine on the, on the table with, um, trying to remember the name of the magazine, like Wedding Bells, I think it's called. But, you know, having these psychological hints as to, hey, I want to get married. Hey, I want to get married. But what's that deeper aspect of what's the reason you want to get married? What's the reason you want to be with this person? What's the reason they want to be with you? How do you make that more gelled experience so that you can move yourself together uh, forward? Right. I think the temperament affects my worldview in terms of it allows me to ask deeper questions. Yes, I agree. Now, you've already given a few examples of this, but can you recall a time when you became aware that your cultural understandings were just specific to you and not normal, that they were specific to your your culture? And I think you mentioned this when you came into the cruise ship and you started to realize that there were louder cultures and there were quieter cultures and that your experience Mm. of German men was perhaps part of the culture you started I think you started to think about culture differently when you came into that cruise ship experience if I'm not mistaken throughout the entire interview you've been talking really about how there were many things that divided you from others and I'm just wondering Mm -hmm. if you can think of another time when that applied and where you really were jolted into the fact that hey what I've experienced is just particular not only to me but to the group that I'm familiar with it's not just normal it's cultural. I, one of the things that uh, like culturally grew up, we always wanted to be honest. We always told the truth. I don't know if that was cultural or if that was Canadian, like a, but that's sort of how I was brought up, I was to, to be honest. And um, I dated a woman from the Caribbean who grew up uh, uh, in Trinidad, Tobago. And when we were discussing her family and interacting with family, it was actually quite common to make things up or to exaggerate or just outright lie. And um, so I, I, you know, outside of the cruise ship is, is this, is this relationship experience that I had where on my side, I was used to be just being honest and telling the truth. And on her side, she was used to making things up. But from my perspective, because I was expecting her to tell the truth, she said, this is a very cultural thing. Like we, you know, around the dinner table, we were expected to make things up and, and exaggerate. Uh, it was it was more for entertainment purposes, but I wasn't privy to that information until later on in the relationship. And so that was a really eye-opening experience of, you know, someone who was, you know, really good person who, you know, I love very much. She loved me very much. There were great things about the relationship, the the two disparities of the way she was brought up to the way I was brought up that really clashed in a lot of ways. So that was a different experience for me. That's um, a great illustration. Mm-hmm. I don't know if it's honesty uh, so much as the whole face-saving and status-gaining, which is different in every culture. So what you would do to gain mm-hmm. status yeah. in one culture would be not what you would do to gain status in another culture. What would be humiliating in one culture would not be humiliating in another. What would be considered offensive mm-hmm. in one culture would not be offensive in another. Because honesty is a cultural value in every culture around the world. But mm-hmm. the way that it shows itself and the way it plays itself out and where it sits in a hierarchy of what is more important can vary greatly. When mm-hmm. I was in Haiti, people typically in Haiti never admit to making a mistake. They will say if mm-hmm. a glass breaks, they'll say the glass wanted to fall off the table. It was feeling weak and it decided to break itself. <laughs> and yeah, um, yeah. at first I was like, what? 
what are you talking about? The, you know, you just knocked the glass off the table and that's why it's broken. Just fess up and be honest. But it, it's just a different way of looking at the situation that is intended not to cause loss of face to the person who just knocked the glass off the table. It feels like such a shock. It feels like, you know, this is fundamental values that we are not going to be able to get over because we won't agree mm-hmm. on it. At the same time, the beauty of it is you don't have to agree on it. I think that if you take the step back and say, you have your way of doing things, I have my way of doing things, yet at the same time, we could still come together and, and do something amazing. Yes. If we want to. And you could also maybe ask, because you're good at asking questions anyway, what does honesty look like to you? What does honesty look like in Trinidad and Tobago? Tell me a story mm-hmm. about a really honest person in Trinidad and Tobago. That would have been a great question to ask if uh, we were still together. <laughs> <laughs> Too late. So sad. Sorry about I, that. I, I could have used that question about 10 years ago. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah. of course, it's easy to say these things in retrospect. It's like, you know, you're oh, in the yeah. moment, right? <laughs> but that was such a great example what you gave because it really shows that you're aware of cultural disruption and many people are not aware of it at all. When I ask them that question, they just can't get their minds around it. They don't know, what are you talking about? Everything I do is what the whole mm-hmm. rest of the world does. They just don't understand that, but you got it right away. I think that comes from just uh, traveling. The only way, the only real way to grasp that things are different elsewhere is to really experience it elsewhere. That's true. I think it was like grade six, we used to read about the, the Aztecs, and there was this game that they used to play where the losing team captain would be beheaded. I couldn't grasp that at that age, but then a number of years later, back in 2004, I was down in Chichen Itza, which is about four hours away from Cancun by bus. And you actually see the place where they played this game and you see the pyramids that they constructed and you look at it all and then you're just like, okay, now it makes sense. You know, it doesn't, it still doesn't make sense to me that they would behead somebody for losing a game or maybe it was winning the game. I can't remember now. Uh, I think they were still on the fence the last time I remember reading about that. I could, I, I digress to that point, but it, it's seeing that there was this different way of life of as to why like each each adult was only allowed like I think it was two like burrito corn breads and these kinds of things like the, everything was very regimented but it had to be that way because of the resources available to them at the time which you know compared to where we are right now here in North America we have a different resource set we have a different value set but it was very acceptable for them at that time but without actually being there to see it it just didn't make sense to me a lot of things when you look back in history don't make sense and i'm sure people will look back in history two or three hundred years and say what were those barbarians doing in the 20th century the 21st century (laughs) (laughs) we don't even have to go that far because we've had such a technological shift over the last 40 50 years and you've got gen zers who uh, grew up on tablets and uh internet and computers and you go back to the gen xers we were just starting on computers and go back to baby boomers that didn't have computers you know 15 years ago we didn't have a phone and a camera and a video recorder and everything else or all those other devices in our pocket and now we have it and so there's already a large disconnect you see socially well there is always from the technological standpoint but in a future civilization where we don't kill people and we're looking back at the history of humanity where human beings kill other human beings for no reason. Animals only kill for a reason. We would mm-hmm. say, what was the matter with those people? Why would they do that? And 
So we can look back and say, why would you play a game where people's heads get cut off? But people are still torturing and killing and, you know, exploiting each other on a massive scale all around the planet. And why would you do that? What is the point to that? <laughs> That's the part we're going to look back on and say, what was wrong with those people? <laughs> so we're reaching the end of the interview. And yeah. I'm going to ask if you were going to give some tips to somebody who was going to hire you. And I'm sure that happens all the time because people are hiring all the time for mm-hmm. speaking gigs and they're hiring you as a business owner to do hypnotherapy or maybe they're mm-hmm. hiring you for a book, right? So yeah. what would you say to them about what would be the best way to work with you and how they could communicate most effectively with you? The most effective communication with me is just picking up the phone, like unless we're geographically located together where we can actually meet face-to-face, uh, is to pick up a phone and talk. In a conversation, the things that I would be looking for is uh, if you're interested in having me uh, like do an event or see me for therapy or whatever that is, I would want a clear clarification about, you know, what's the purpose. So if you're doing an event, for an example, you know, what is it that you want the participants and the guests to feel? Do you want them to be entertained or do you, like in cases of when I'm doing sales training, do you want a specific outcome that you want participants to have? And so once you understand what that outcome is, then I can actually say, this is how I can fit. Or maybe this is, I'm not the right fit and somebody else that I know is a better fit, uh, depending on what the outcome is. A lot of people just say, well, I want to I wanna do something, but I don't know what. And what I do is very specific. Like uh, on the entertainment side, Christmas party is a really good example. It's pretty easy to say, I want a Christmas party. I just want to have some fun with my group. But uh, on a sales side, you're looking at a team, people that... Uh, have self-confidence issues or they have overconfidence issues uh, or they need some a new methodology to sit down and communicate with people. I always find the, this one interesting is, is the MLMs. I mean, everybody, maybe it's just because of my industry, because I'm up on stage and I can talk, I get approached by MLMs like every, there's probably four or five a day of MLMs trying to contact me, people trying to recruit me. And the challenge with those folks is they've been told by their upline that they just need to keep on talking to people, keep on talking to people, and eventually people will sign up and eventually they'll be successful and they'll make this business. And what those people haven't told them, and it's probably because they don't understand that they got lucky and they developed those skills, is they haven't figured out how to develop a relationship to a point that the person likes them. And then once they like them, then the next step in liking somebody is becoming friends and having comfort, safety, and trust around them. And so the idea, if you want to work with me, is how do we build comfort, safety, and trust uh, within the people that are participating in whatever service that I'm providing? How do we do that so it's effective and it makes the person who's hiring me look good, feel good, and get exactly what they're paying for? That is a great answer. A really great answer. If people thought about answering that way all the time, they would come up with really good results. <laughs> this is why I like to have the phone conversation because then I can ask the questions and guide them to that very quickly and very easily. It's, you know, you can try that on an email, but that would take you know fifty emails back and forth. And, and even then, versus, even then, the yeah. trust may be missing. <laughs> it is because there's no there's no conversation. There's no real. It's like a text message and hey. I, I do find it interesting that um, we were just having this discussion in an entertainer's group 
the other day about like uh, millennials, how they like to, to text and email. They don't like to actually have conversations. And we actually came to the conclusion, it's not that they don't like having conversations. They love having conversations, but they want the conversation experience to be valuable. There needs to be a reason other than I'm just providing a service. If you're just providing a product or a service, there's no reason for them to pick up the phone to talk. There's no reason to have a connection because they really want the experience. And just as a little side before we go to the last question, and that is you mentioned BNI, which is the Business Network International, mm-hmm. and which I recently joined. It's a great networking organization to help uh, businesses provide mutual benefit to each other. But I'm wondering mm-hmm. if you might like to say something about your experience with BNI and what that's done for your business. Yeah, sure. So I've been in BNI uh, just over two years now. It's a fascinating thing because you meet every week at a breakfast or lunch meeting, depending on what it is. And you're sort of presenting, you get 30, depending on the size of the group, between 30 seconds and a minute to talk about your stuff, the types of referrals that you're looking for. But that's sort of the the standard structure. The magic actually comes in at BNI when you're actually going out. There are these mandatory one-to-ones is what they call. So we sit down and actually learn about the other person in the room and they learn about you. You learn about each other's businesses, but not just your businesses. You learn about what makes them tick. Similar to this podcast or the questions that you're asking, you get to, you get to really develop a relationship with these people. They become your friends. And so I've made you know great friends in the, in the two years and discovered a, a wonderful support network that I would not have had, or, well, I didn't have before that. I think the best way to describe it is if you're like... We talked about earlier about like you're on as an entertainer, you're on the road, you're isolated all the time. And then suddenly you've got this group of people that you're performing for, and then you're back to being isolated. That the structure of BNI will take away that isolation. It gives you something to come back to, that touchstone to reset you and, you know, get you focused on your business, but also getting you focused on, uh, creating, you know, visibility because you're there every week. And then that credibility aspect comes because they know you, you can rely on them and they know that they can rely on you. And then that leads to the referrals and the profitability and the connections and, you know, sky's the limit. So it's an amazing organization. Mm-hmm. So is there anything else that you would like to say? No, I think that really covers it. Like I, people, one of the common questions people ask me is, you know, where can I see some of the, the TV stuff and the, the articles and those kinds of things? And when I put a bit of a compilation together. I think you've got it. You'll probably put it in the show notes. But if anybody's interested in that kind of stuff, then you just go check out the website and watch some of the TV interviews. Everybody's really excited about seeing those kinds of things. And it's called Colin on TV? Yeah, C-O-L-I-N on TV.com. Perfect. Yeah. We'll put all the links that you provided into the show notes so that people can get in touch with you. And I'm looking forward to seeing a performance. I think it would be pretty cool. (laughs) Absolutely. I'll keep you posted. (laughs) Yeah, do that. And I also think it would be very interesting to hear how you do coaching or would you be considered a therapist rather than a coach? A better way to describe me on on that side, like I am a clinical hypnotherapist. And I see clients for, for, you know, the standard quitting smoking, helping fears and phobias, all those kinds of things. Uh, and that's great. But on the sales side, I do, it's a training mm-hmm. uh, thing that I do. So it's, sort, it's almost like um, if you think about basketball, most people like in, in school when they learn to play basketball, before they picked up the ball, they had to actually learn how to walk. And then, and then from walking, they would grab a ball and they'd start dribbling. And then they had to learn how to walk and dribble at the same time. 
And all of that happened long before you started shooting. And then you'd add layups and free throws and all that. And then you'd, but you'd, you'd learn all these techniques and you'd practice all these drills so that you could become competent within the game. And so, you know, that entire process that we talked about where um, like if you're trying to sell something and you, uh, like in the MLM scenario, you're, it's like, hey, just come and sign up and do this and you'll achieve that. But what they're, that missing link is, you know, how do you actually connect with that person so that the person likes you and you develop that relationship so that they're actually a real friend and you want to do business together. You want to trust each other because there's that true, genuine relationship. And there's, there's all kinds of different exercises that I've developed that can drill you and train you on that. And that's sort of the training that I do so that you can create that in a duplicatable way. You can create that. I like you. I'm connected with you, but not in a fake way, in a real way, like you would with a, like you can think of any friend that you've got. If you think back to the first time that you met, you remember what you did, what happened, the excitement, whatever it is. And all those steps happen naturally. What's missing. And the great thing that, you know, that I sort of developed when I was on cruise ships and with, therapy is how do you make that a duplicatable process in a natural way so that it's actually real and genuine. Yeah, I think that was a great way to end because it shows how important everything's really based on relationships. And this podcast is all about that. It's about relationships within groups and how we form networks. For an entertainer, that almost seems like it's not necessary, but it is very necessary because that's how your audience grows. That's how, and you've been able to manage moving from entertainment to getting people to have assistance on one, one-on-one with, with issues that they want to deal with to helping them to develop skills in a training context. So all of those things really show that you're a trustworthy, capable person in a variety of different contexts. And I feel very honored that you spent this time on the podcast. And I, I'm sure that listeners will learn a lot from listening to you. Oh, it's my pleasure. I, I really appreciate you inviting me. Thank you so much, Colin. Have a great day, and thanks again for being a part of the Culture and Leadership Connections podcast. My pleasure. Thank you. I really did enjoy my time here. Colin Christopher has a most unique specialization, that of being able to use hypnosis for both entertainment and healing. The way he discovered his ability to use hypnosis and his subsequent rise to fame in the industry make a fascinating story. Colin is not shy about explaining his own struggles and how he learned from them. He contributes significantly to his industry and serves the business community through Business Network International and through a second business as a high-level event planner. Colin's life story certainly touched me deeply during our interview, and I'm certain it will be of benefit to all our podcast listeners to hear it. Thank you for listening, and may culture and leadership connections continue to guide and inspire your world. By the way, I would love it if you could share this episode with a friend. We always have podcast listener growth goals, and you can be part of our next milestone. Newsflash, have you downloaded our Future of Work set of three articles? Reading them provides you with the cutting-edge insights you need to develop a new career transition into a different industry, position yourself for a new job, or start a business in ways that are aligned with the trends and disruptions of work in the world today. Make sure you are positioned to both survive and thrive. Download our Future of Work white paper article set here. It is shiftworkplace.co slash 
Future of Work white paper. That is shiftworkplace.co slash future of work white paper. And get started on the news you need today to stay current 